Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only Internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Just a quick bit of housekeeping before I introduce today's special guest. I'm happy to announce that I'm working on my next book. The title is Reclaim Your Digestive Health and Feel Normal Again, Fixing the Root Cause of Your GI Distress with Natural Treatments. Now this book should be ready about mid-2016, so keep an eye out for it. Okay, that's it for our housekeeping, so let's get started. I'm so excited about today's show because my special guest is Dr. Michael Ash. He is an osteopathic doctor, naturopath, and nutritionist with over 30 years of experience. Now, for the last 15 years, he has developed expertise in the role of the mucosal immune system in health and disease. Dr. Ash is also an adjunct faculty member for the Institute for Functional Medicine. Dr. Ash, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Well, Carrie, thank you very much for inviting me and giving me the chance to speak with you. Okay, so can you explain to our listeners about what mucous membranes are and uh, where are they and why are they so important for our health? Certainly. It's it's sometimes easier to think of these as the wet membranes. Uh, Mucus is referring to uh, a little exudate that these cells produce to protect themselves from primarily bacteria, but also other antigens, which are foreign agents that we may either inhale or ingest. So all the mucous membranes include those around your eye, your lungs, your gastrointestinal tract, your liver, your genital and urinary tract, and they represent a very significant area. And whilst I guess everyone can look at somebody and say they've got quite a decent amount of skin around their body, inside of us we have an internal skin, and we refer to that as the wet tissue or the mucous membranes. And the biggest area for this is found in the gastrointestinal tract. And the reason we have a a large amount of tissue there is because that's where we meet all those bits and pieces that are not us in the greatest volume. And as a result, we have a lot of defense molecules and defense chemicals lined up down there to protect us. And we call that the mucosal immune system. And that makes up depending on different figures between, say, 60 and 70 or 75 percent of the total immune system that our body ever has to utilize. And a very nice little quote from a gentleman called Professor Lloyd Mayer some years ago said that in a single day, the immune system in our gastrointestinal tract has to make more decisions than our rest of our body's immune system makes in its lifetime. And consequently, we have a lot of receptors or specialized locks and keys that have to fit together and a lot of capability for adapting to different challenges. And 
I know you've got a particular interest in uh, non-communicable diseases or what are called chronic diseases these days. And there's a, been a big shift in the last 15, 20 years I've been researching this area to recognize that these wet tissues or mucosal membranes hold many of the reasons and some of the secrets as to why people don't feel very well for long periods of time or indeed why people like yourself help them to recover by repairing these membranes and the bacteria that live around them. Now in functional medicine there's a big push right now around digestive health and a lot of research going on about the bacteria that live in us and on us and so can you explain a little bit about the importance of that bacteria and how it relates to our immune system and our mucous membranes? Absolutely. Um, for a long time, and in, indeed in, in many journals even now, you'll see people who write research will start off by saying that we're born sterile. And that means that we are being born without the family of bacteria that we ultimately live with being present. But Probably six or seven years ago, that began to be questioned because in taking samples from umbilical cords, we could find that there were bacteria present in neonates. And so we're not born sterile, but we're born with a relatively modest amount of bacteria that pass from our mother. Now, these bacteria grow in number once we emerge, partly for a transfer through delivery process and then, of course, from being picked up and hugged and move from different environments to different environments and we build a population of bacteria which begin to contribute to our ability to survive and these bacteria i sometimes like to say to people think of these a bit like you're outsourcing some of the dull jobs uh, that your body doesn't want to take care of and these include the fermentation of different types of foods the the maturation of uh, different types of immune responses and keeping hold of metabolic health inside the body. That's the way that we handle foods and make sure that they contribute to us healthily rather than as a disadvantage. Now, what's become quite clear over the last, I would say, less than a decade is that you and I, because we are living in the Western world, have far less diversity, that means a different range of bacteria, than our nearest hunter-gatherer ancestors based in, say, South America or Africa. And engineers will always tell you two things, that you always try and make a system work more efficiently by over-engineering or building in redundancy, which means that you can have spare capacity if something goes wrong. And part of our redundancy capability has been having spare bacteria that we can either sacrifice in the face of an infection, or we can increase in their numbers in the face of a change in lifestyle. Modern medicine, the use of antibiotics, and a changing birthing practices over the last 60 years has meant that every generation that's now born appears to have less and less diversity. And that's now bringing complications in that within that diversity, we had these outsourcing bacteria that would communicate with our immune system. They sort of shake hands in a metaphorical way with our immune cells and deliver a message. And it's a bit like having a very friendly neighborhood where everybody gets on and if there's a problem, everyone gets together and works well to solve the problem. And as time has gone on, we've lost some of those neighbors or they've been replaced by ones that don't communicate very well or they give the wrong message. 
So as the instance of acute infectious disease or trauma illness has declined in its importance in terms of overall mortality, so that these chronic illnesses and non-communicable diseases become more dominant in clinical practice, the old style of medical care that we've been familiar with, which is geared up to deal with emergencies, doesn't translate very well into helping people recover from complex, multiple different types of events taking place. Obviously, functional medicine has evolved over the last 20 years to try to help clinicians develop a set of skills that can intersect five or six different therapies simultaneously. And I've been teaching, you're probably aware, on IFM for many, many years on how we can use these underpaid, undernourished, poorly treated bacteria in our gut and by giving them a better pay rise, better home to live in, better quality food, they start to work more efficiently, they give better messages, they turn off inflammatory molecules, and the result is that we end up feeling much better. So that's why I think there's been an increasing interest from the functional medicine community is to learn how do you do that as well as why do you do that. So can you talk a little bit about some of the different diseases that we now know um, can be caused or contributed to um, because of bacterial imbalances or this lack of diversity? Well, you'll get spoiled for choice. Um, everything from uh, diabetes or pre-diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, central nervous system disorders, including Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease, are increasingly attributed, at least in part, either causally, i.e. that there's a distinct relationship between, for example, inflammatory bowel disease and a change in bacterial mixture inside the gastrointestinal tract, and correlationally, which means that we see, it's difficult to say which came first, whether the change in function came first or the change in the bacteria came first. But if you take that as a point of intervention and you improve the bacterial mix and their immune responsiveness in your body, you can diminish symptomology in a wide range of chronic illnesses. So I'm sure you must see in practice someone presents with uh, ongoing hypertension, pre-diabetes, often with a skin complaint, often with a gastrointestinal problem, sometimes with uh, central nervous system disorders, they can't concentrate or attention spans declining. They may have some joint discomfort, maybe some headaches. And they dump this list on people. And if you're a physician that's been trained primarily to place individuals into a therapeutic modality based on a primary presenting complaint, it's quite hard to know which one you target because you can find an intervention for each of those problems, but you realize you can't give some of these six different drugs simultaneously, although I know that does happen. But mostly you're trying to limit the amount of uh, pharmaceutical intervention. And what the gastrointestinal tract does for us, it allows us to have a point of intervention that once we clean it up and make it work more efficiently, we often find symptoms associated with those different conditions either disappear or diminish. And so we have a central point of intervention that's safe and easy. And once you understand how to do this, it's quite easy and reproducible that ends up meaning that that poor person who feels they can see no way forward because everything is working against simultaneously begins to recover a sense of confidence, a sense of direction, and can begin to move out of their ill health into a state of health again. 
Now for our listeners out there, Dr. Ash did such a great job with that list that I want you to understand what he's talking about applies to all of us. And one of the things that you mentioned on that list, Dr. Ash, was the the brain, the nervous system. And it's really exciting some of the research that's coming out about how the gut and the brain are connected. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. There's an increasing confidence, I would say, amongst the people who've been involved in the study of mucosal immune system dysfunction. Uh, there's quite a big group of us that specialize in this area around the world. Um, and whilst in early stages, there was looking primarily at animal models to try and see the relationship between behavior and what we refer to as something called a dysbiosis, which is a state of being inside the gastrointestinal tract, which is no longer harmonious. There's some disadvantages to us because of the way that the bacteria are. Began to notice in, in uh, animal models that animals' behavior would become less and less consistent and more erratic when they got a dysbiosis. And so that then moved into early stage human studies. And now there's numbers of groups uh, in different countries around the world looking at longitudinal and short term intervention studies to see. If we correct an identifiable dysbiotic event in the gut, if we can see a change in mild to moderate depression, some neurodevelopmental disorders, quite significant changes such as schizophrenia and autism, uh, right away along to what are perceived primarily to be age-related disorders, which is dementia and senility. And this is not, this might surprise you, Carrie, it might not. Uh, it may surprise more listeners, but this concept is not that new What's more new really is the ability for us to be far more molecular in the way that we understand it. And here's a, here's a little bit of history, which I think is always quite interesting. In the English medical profession, back in the early 1900s, two doctors um, began to write about their recognition that a change in colonic health, that's what piece of a tissue where the bulk of our waste material is stored before elimination could be associated with a change in behavior. And Willie Lane, Dr. Lane, started an organization called New Health. It sounds quite 21st century when we looked at it now. And he began to promote the idea that we had toxins inside our colon. And these were generated by bacteria and by food combinations. And if they leaked, from the colon through the barrier into the bloodstream, uh, a number of different illnesses could result. So malaise, depression, insomnia, dizziness, fatigue, for example, were common symptoms that were described. Ultimately, these became labeled to some degree of depressive behavior. And another gentleman called Dr. Henry Cotton began to explore the idea that this was a postular transfer, that somehow or other, we were producing an infectious response inside the gastrointestinal tract and that pus was the trigger. Now, Dr. Lane is unusual. He has two hospital wings in the UK named after him because he was a royal physician at the time. And he really espoused that which you and I would hold very dear to our clinical strategy, which was good health came from appropriate food selection, regular exercise, a state of mental calmness, good social interaction, and that we were trying not to use whatever medications were being issued at the time. Whereas Dr. Henry Cotton took a slightly more aggressive view, which was that you should remove the colon and that having a radical colonectomy 
would take away this problem and, and therefore induce a state of uh, improved health. Well, you might imagine uh, there was perhaps less success with Dr. Cotton's approach than there was with Dr. Lane, but the pair of them lost momentum in the 1920s, 1930s. One, because Dr. Cotton ended up with the first set of observed trial and uh, reflective research pointing out that his therapy was ineffective and it resulted in lots of deaths. And Dr. Lane lost, as we've seen many times, I'm sure you're familiar with many physicians who sort of rise to a level of enormous popularity and credibility, and then they seem to move outside of a framework that their colleagues accept as being relatively standardized and then they become diminished over time so he began to as he got towards retirement um, be excluded from the medical profession albeit that he'd been so successful that these wards remain or these hospital wings rather remain named after him so this transferred transatlantic to north america and to some degree to canada uh, and then the whole idea began to lose some attractiveness as the pharmaceutical market began to see whether or not choosing individual molecular chemicals, what are called neurotransmitters, of which I suspect most of your listeners have heard of serotonin, began to explore whether or not uh, a pharmaceutical attempt to replace a missing chemical would provide some change in behavior. Now, to you and I, this won't be great news, but to many people, it might still be a bit of a surprise that there's really no statistical evidence to support the fact that the utilization of serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs proffers any great advantage to mild to moderate depression over and above that which can be achieved by either cognitive behavioral therapy, regular exercise, social interaction, and of course, a change in diet. So this old story lost its way, became pushed to one side and was looked at rather unsympathetically and in the last 20 years specialist interest groups and in particular the autistic community began to re-examine this area and I spent many years running a large division of my practice looking after individuals within the spectrum and I've treated hundreds of people uh, to try and improve their functionality by uncoupling themselves from either a dysbiotic or an inflammatory gut. These days, molecular medicine means that we can pick apart some of those ancient concepts and apply credible, albeit emerging, understanding about why they do or don't work. So here's a very simple bits and pieces for you. Inside our colon, which is the end of our digestive tract, we have the biggest population of bacteria or organisms. These are our outsourcing friends. If we give them a pay rise, appropriate food in a nice warm environment, they don't become rebellious, they don't go on strike, and they don't start causing a problem on the streets. They actually produce for us a very nice metabolite known as a short-chain fatty acid. So they break up our food and they produce a little chemical, and this chemical is used by our gut to heal itself. It's used by cells in our gastrointestinal tract to make sure that they remain healthy, vibrant, and are quick to replace. But here's something which I think may be news, it may not be to yourself, but I think it will be to many of the listeners today. These short-chain fatty acids cross into the brain, and they do so because they cross into the bloodstream and they migrate through the blood-brain barrier. And here's something I find, still find remarkably uh, exciting, is that they change the flexibility 
or we sometimes refer to that as the plasticity of neuronal tissue to respond to challenges, which in simple language means that choosing the correct food delivered to a bacteria that's of the right type produces a metabolite that leaves the gut, travels through the bloodstream, enters the brain, and feeds brain tissue in order that synapses and microglia, which are specialized cells, are able to grow in response either to injury or trauma, infection or disease, or previous damage due to insults, which includes inflammation, medication, and ultimately some form of damage that may have occurred due to um, transitory electrical injuries or other types of damage. So if you understand, and that's only a very small piece of this whole picture, I don't want to everybody think that's the only way because our brain and our gut communicate in a bi-directional dialogue utilizing lots of little small molecular messengers called different types of proteins 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And therefore, it requires us to look after our employees and our gastrointestinal tract as if they were being employed 365 days a year. And none of us, yourself and I included, like to be undervalued in our work. We like to be respected and paid appropriately and feel that we are um, valued by our host, which is us. So I try and encourage my patients to think about they've got a workforce which they now need to look after. And if they do so, the workforce do a fantastic job. They've done it for millennia, but they rely on us providing them with material to do their job properly. And our westernized diets these days no longer do that with as much efficiency as they used to. Okay, so what what are some practical suggestions that we can give our listeners that they can start doing today so they, they can help um, um, nourish these employees and give them a raise in pay? Okay. Because probably they're just thinking, well, maybe I'll just go to the health food store and get a bottle of probiotics, and that's all I need to do. Uh, and uh, if they bought the right type of probiotics, they would generally derive a benefit. But an organism, which we induce exogenously by swallowing it, will not work efficiently if that's the only approach that we have. We have to do two other things. We have to make sure that the immune system inside our gastrointestinal tract is working effectively as possible and we have to make sure that the fuel or the food or in simple parlance the pay grade that we're putting them on is adequate to make sure they do their job properly so here's a very simple because it's always useful to have some simple practical tools i think at the end of these uh-huh. these chats uh-huh. i guess a very good thing to keep in mind is one if we look at our immediate closest ancestors that are using hunter-gathering techniques. There's no way that we could transfer that style of eating into the typical Western diet. But there's a couple of big takeaways. One is that eat a lot of fibrous foods. Now, a typical North American and Canadian and European eats between 10 and maybe 15 grams in weight of fiber per day. And our ancestors that are still functioning eat between 100 and 120 grams a day. So we have significantly reduced the amount of fiber. And so what type of fiber is it we want to eat? Well, primarily this is derived from plants. There are about 50,000 plants we could eat. Uh, we generally eat most of our food from six different types of food groups. And of those, the grains that we consume make up the bulk of the fiber. 
but they're not always well digested. So the fibers we want to eat should be derived from vegetables. And the best vegetables are the ones that are a little bit more tricky to consume. So cabbage, cauliflower, onions, carrots, peas, beetroot, squash, all of these foods come with two absolutely unique components. One is that they make make it to the colon where the employees say thank you very much. It's just like getting a bonus in our wage packet every week and they break them down and ferment them to produce these short chain fatty acids and a lot of other things as well but we don't have enough time to go through those. And the second thing is that these plants carry a special key. It's a molecular key and it fits into a special lock inside of us and that lock turns on some genes and so these foods turn on genes inside of us which switch off inflammation and send out special messages to our immune system to make us more tolerant of our environment which includes making us more tolerant to our foods more tolerant to toxins and to poisons because it makes us work more efficiently more tolerant to different types of medications and ultimately more tolerant to other people because we don't feel so grumpy or we don't feel so prone to agitation. So if we look at vegetables and particularly cruciferous or slightly denser packed vegetables and those with a little bit of bitterness to their taste and we cook them or steam them but don't overcook them, then this essentially is a wage packet with a bonus for our bacteria every week. Then the second thing is uh, is a fruit, and this is always one of my long-standing, I've used this for almost 30 years as a therapy, is that we take an apple, a Bramley cooking apple, peel about 90% of it, and then cook it down and add cinnamon. And we add quite a lot of cinnamon to it as it cooks down because cinnamon helps to control blood sugar, but it also is a very good anti-inflammatory. Add a few little raisins to that, and I cook it so that we call it stewed apples in England. It's sometimes referred to as apple sauce in uh, North America and Canada, but there's a difference between the two. And a stewed apple carries with it a series of messages, both mucins uh, or a mucin-promoting compound called pectin, and it also makes bacteria change in population numbers to favor a type that makes us more tolerant to foods and to challenging agents. So if you take two messages away here, one is try and eat a bigger range of vegetables, try to eat a modest amount of fruits, and of the fruits that we can say have a really powerful effect, that is apples. And in a very nice study done a few years ago, it showed that two Bramley apples, they were organic in this case, so they weren't sprayed with any unwanted chemicals, but two Bramley apples fed to a rat model with colitis produce the same benefit as 15 milligrams of a steroid medication given to the control animals. So Carrie, the, the, the story I was uh, alluding to is that the use of apples has two strong effects in humans. One is that it can change the composition of bacteria to favor a anti-inflammatory mix, which has benefits both locally and elsewhere in the body. And then there's a direct effect that apples in an animal model using rats demonstrated the benefit equivalent to 15 milligrams of an oral steroid composition 
uh, with people with uh, or with animals with the human version of inflammatory bowel disease. And what this meant to me uh, when I read this paper some years ago was one, it validated some of the uh, clinical benefits I'd seen using this model with apples and cinnamon over a number of years, but also gave me an increased confidence that this is a great message that people can take away is that food is genuinely as efficient as medicine if you know what type of food to eat and when, but you also respect, but at the same time, the immune system in the gastrointestinal tract and the bacterial composition in the gastrointestinal tract have to be managed at the same time. And so you asked about, wouldn't taking a probiotic be good enough? There's huge variations in different types of bacteria. There's great deal differences in terms of the doses that you take. Used correctly, a probiotic can be extremely useful. But used without any specificity, it really is difficult to say whether someone's going to derive either nothing or, or perhaps a modest improvement. But used in conjunction with appropriate food selection, uh, then they can really uh, leverage those bacteria and they get the cornerstone of the fiber and the right types of fiber that increases the population of bacteria at the same time. And then you can add some additional species to improve further the immune response. Fantastic. And I'm never surprised when I have my most complex patients come in and they make dramatic diet changes they always seem to get the fastest and most dramatic response to their health. So food is your number one medicine. Now, Dr. Ash, I have to ask you about these Bramley apples because in Canada, I've never heard of Bramley apples. Would it work with other types of apples? Yes. Um, there's a couple of things. You, I'm sure you have a differentiation between eaters and cookers. So that the yes. cooking apple yes. has a slightly more acidic taste. Well, it's a cooking apple okay. that you would choose in preference to an eating apple because they collapse too quickly. The cooking apple has more pectin in it and therefore it holds together for longer. So if, you just, if we just said to your listeners, you want to choose a cooking apple, the second thing is that you would want to clean it wash it unless you know it's an organically raised one and hasn't been sprayed and then you chop it up pop it into a saucepan with some water add a good heaped teaspoon of cinnamon which you can just buy from your local grocery store so that the apples have a slightly brown tinge half a dozen raisins or sultanas so that the uh, your the husband doesn't complain it's not sweet enough and it adds just a little bit of texture and then cook it down and you take away in England, we call it a ramekin, but you probably get a sense that roughly one cooking apple per day is what the therapeutic dose is for ongoing care, and the equivalent of two a day when we're trying to do an acute intervention. And I always recommend people add to that an organic, natural yogurt, so it almost feels like a dessert. And uh, we know that men generally are hopeless at taking medicine, but they will tend to eat stewed apples. And then you can sprinkle into that yogurt uh, bacteria or yeast, depending on what type of model you're doing, or other powdered ingredients, and it all gets taken up at once. And that way you provide fuel for the organism, you provide additional therapeutic uh, medium, and that improves the composition of the bacteria, improves the immune system, and improves the production of these short-chain fatty acids to not simply help the brain, but to help other tissues as well. 
Oh, fantastic. These are very practical suggestions that all of our listeners can start implementing today. Dr. Ash, how can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a website? I do. Uh, Obviously, I'm in the UK, but we have a not-for-profit educational website that we um, where I write uh, articles for every week. It's called clinicaleducation.org. So clinicaleducation.org. And if you go to the search bar and type in apples, uh, you'll find that recipe. You'll find the research behind it. And you'll also see three or four other articles I've written to give you more confidence about how that operates and what effect it has. And I've written lots of review articles there. So if you genuinely feel I'd like to learn a bit more and you've got half an hour to spare, uh, you can spend a bit of time working your way through that. Perfect. So for our listeners out there that might be in the kitchen right now doing some cooking or they're in the car or they're on their bike, I'll make sure that those links are in our podcast notes so you can easily find that information. Dr. Ash, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has been a great interview. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Michael Ash. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next week for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Kiri Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.